This is a Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome two guests today, John J. Mirschimer and Sebastian Rosado, authors of How States Think, The Rationality of Foreign Policy. John J. Mirschimer is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He is the author of The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. Sebastian Rosado is professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame and the author of Intentions in Great Power Politics, Uncertainty and the Roots of Conflict. Welcome to the podcast, John and Sebastian. I look forward to our conversation about your latest publication, How States Think. As do I. It's a pleasure to be here. It's rare that we have two authors on the podcast at once. How did you two first meet, and what was the writing process like for the book? Uh, so John and I have known each other for 25 years at this point. Um, John was my dissertation advisor at the University of Chicago, and we've both been interested in, in international relations theory uh, throughout our careers. This piece uh, came into being because John got in touch with me and said, would you like to write a piece about the rational actor assumption? As I said, we're both theorists and the rational actor assumption is fundamental to international relations theory. So we met up in Hyde Park a few times. Uh, we wrote an article. Uh, this is just before the pandemic hit. Um, and then the pandemic hit and we shopped the article around and we got the feeling that we didn't have a good handle on rationality, but that it was a fascinating subject. All our interlocutors were deeply interested in the subject. So we decided that with nothing else to do and a lot of time on our hands because of the pandemic, that we would write a book. And here we are. And in, in this book, How States Think, The Rationality of Foreign Policy, you address a central question in international relations do states act rationally? Why is this such a concern for international relation theorists? Well, it's very important to understand that when we decided to do the article originally, and then the book, as Sebastian said, uh, it was the case that both in the policy world and in the academic world, there were lots of voices that were saying that states act irrationally. And we thought that this was a quite profound perspective, and it caused a lot of trouble for international relations theory as well as policymakers. The fact is that most international relations theories are based on the rational actor assumption. And if states don't act rationally, that undermines a huge body of theory. Furthermore, if you're a policymaker and you're trying to negotiate the world, you're trying to deal with allies and adversaries, and you assume that they're irrational, that they're behaving in wild and crazy ways, how can you formulate policy? It almost has to be the case that states act rationally most of the time for policymakers to operate in some sort of coherent way uh, in the real world. So our view was that this claim that states are usually irrational 
had to be examined and our intuition from the get-go was it was wrong so we set out to examine the issue and see if our intuition was correct and that led to the book that we're now talking about right and and there are several actors in the book such as rational choice theorists and political psychologists that um, you know their their conclusion being that states are routinely irrational and you argue in the book that both of, of these actors have flawed definitions of rationality and non-rationality. Can you talk a little bit about how these definitions fall short? Our basic view is that there are two schools of thought that deal explicitly with the subject of rationality. And one is the rational choice theorists, and two are the political psychologists. But nevertheless, both the political psychologists and the rational choice theorists use the same definition of rationality, and that's expected utility maximization, which is the definition that is used in rational choice theory, or to be a bit more specific, it's the definition that's used in economics. And it basically says that individuals or states use a magic formula to determine how they should formulate policies, how they should behave. And both political psychologists and rational choice theorists or economists of, uh, in the mainstream use this definition to define uh, or use this definition for rationality. So there's not much difference between the political psychologists and the rational choice theorists on what is the definition of rationality. And there is, however, one minor difference between the two. The economists or the rational choice theory argue that states act as if they were rational or as if they were using expected utility maximization. They don't say that they actually act that way, they act as if the political psychologists and the behavioral economic economists look at whether states or individuals actually act according to the dictates of expected utility maximization but nevertheless both of them use expected utility maximization as the sort of definition of what is rationality. And in our book, what we are doing is we are challenging that definition. We are making the argument that expected utility maximization is not a good definition of rationality, and that in fact, we have a better definition of rationality to offer. We have a pretty uncontroversial view of what rationality is at, at a sort of conceptual level. It's all about making sense of the world so that you can navigate that world in pursuit of whatever goals you might have. That's not a controversial uh, definition. Um, what differs us from uh, the rational choice theorists and the political psychologists is that, as John said, they think that the way to do that um, rationally is to employ expected utility maximization. And the key point to note here is that that is a data-driven enterprise. John mentioned the magic formula. The magic formula works with data. 
Um, you survey the historical record, you come up with probabilities of various outcomes, and you feed those probabilities into the formula, and it tells you what's rational and what's not. We have a fundamentally different take. In, in our view, making sense of the world and navigating it so that you can achieve certain goals um, is only rational if you employ what we call a credible theory. So where they are data-driven in their understanding of rationality, we are theory-driven. And in fact, we refer to um, our rational policymakers as homo theoreticus, whereas um, the expected utility maximization people, uh, again, who focus on data and probabilities, refer to homo economicus. Let's turn now to the theory of rationality proposed in this book, uh, which focuses on the deliberate decision-making processes of state leaders at the collective level. How did you arrive at this theory of rationality and what does it assume about human nature? Well, what we did was decide early on that if you're gonna talk about rationality, you have to focus first on the individual and you have to figure out how the individual makes sense of the world and how individuals come up with policies for dealing with the world that they're operating in. But that was not enough because what you quickly discover is that individuals have different theories and therefore they have different policies. So the question is, how do you reconcile the fact that you have a handful of policymakers uh, with different theories and therefore different policies? Uh, and that's where you have to look at what happens at the collective level. You have to look at what happens at the state level. And to put it in even more specific terms, you have to look at the deliberation that takes place among those policymakers. So when we define rationality, what we do is we first go to the individual and we look at the theories that each individual in the policymaking process relies on to formulate his or her preferred policy. And we ask whether those theories are credible theories and therefore the policies are rational policies. And having done that, then we turn to the decision-making process, the collective decision-making process where these different individuals get together as Sebastian and I like to refer to it, as in the room, when they all get in the room and they deliberate, do those deliberations uh, look like they are systematic and fair-minded and so forth and so on. So to be rational in our story, you have to be rational at the individual level as well as the collective level. And I would just add that um, this is where we also differ from the mainstream. As I mentioned earlier, we, we differ in terms of data-driven versus theory-driven, as John just uh, elaborated. But the, the mainstream, the rational choice theorists, the political psychologists, don't have what John and I refer to as an aggregation process in mind. They don't go, they, they focus on the individual, and they don't go from the individual to the state level. And I think our real innovation uh, in, in this respect was to take individuals and then understand that states are groups of individuals and that you have to have a rational aggregation process. Uh, that rational aggregation process uh, involves deliberation uh, amongst all the different parties. 
Um, and again, that's a story that's missing in the mainstream. Yeah, just to add to that, it's very important to understand that both in the rational choice literature and in the political psychology uh, literature, uh, what you see as is that different individuals come up with different policy preferences. And once that is the case, you have to deal with how those differences are settled. What does aggregation look like? What does deliberation look like? And both in the rational choice literature and in the political psychology literature, there is effectively no meaningful discussion of deliberation or aggregation of these different policy prescriptions. And and in the you know move away from more data driven enterprises that perhaps miss certain aspects of of individual rationality or irrationality, there are many different theories of rationality that you discuss in the book, a couple of them being strategic rationality and goal rationality. And the question of are states rational is narrowed down to do states act strategically rational um, or are states strategically rational? And can you discuss or explain how strategic rationality and goal rationality appear throughout the book? Sure. John and I thought it was very important when you're writing about rationality um, in international politics, rationality of any kind, that you need to talk about um, the rationality of an actor's goals. Um, is what they want rational? Um, and then the second question is, um, is, do they have a rational strategy for achieving those goals? That's what we call strategic rationality. It just so happens that pretty much the entire debate is about the issue of strategic rationality. What, what scholars in international politics are interested in is, are states strategically rational? Are they rational in coming up with policies that, to achieve their goals? Nonetheless, we thought that um, for a full understanding of rationality, you also had to ask yourself, are states rational in terms of their goals, um, just to round out the story. So the majority of the book is dedicated to the issue of strategic rationality in keeping with the literature. Um, but we then do talk about goal rationality and ask the further question, in addition to do states, uh, are states rational in coming up with their strategies, um, do they have rational goals? Yeah. And just to piggyback on what Sebastian said and say a few words about goal rationality. Uh, we basically argue that goal rationality revolves around the concept of survival. And we maintain that for a state to have goal rationality, survival must be the number one goal. Because if a state doesn't survive in the international system, then it can't pursue any other goals. And you want to remember, we're talking about goal rationality here in the context of international relations. We're talking about it in the context of foreign policy. So we have a rather minimalist definition of goal rationality, which is to say simply that survival has to be the number one goal. And how you arrange your other goals is largely irrelevant for the subject of rationality. 
So you can have many goals, and all you have to do to be goal rational is make sure that survival is number one, and you don't compromise survival uh, in favor of goal number two or goal number three. Right, and and in addition to the concept of survival, it seems as if the definition or theory of rationality in this book is much more about the processes versus the outcomes that lead to a state's survival. Yes, Sebastian said, we focus mainly on strategic rationality. We, of course, distinguish between goal rationality and strategic rationality, but we focused uh, in great detail on strategic rationality because that is what the literature focuses on. When you talk about the rational choice literature and the political psychology literature, uh, those two literatures are mainly concerned or almost exclusively concerned with strategic rationality. So it's no accident that that's where uh, our focus was as well. But Claire, just to go to your excellent point, we do think of rationality in terms of process, not outcomes. Very important when you're judging whether a state or a policymaker is rational. What matters is, is the process um, rational? Do they have credible theories? Do they deliberate amongst themselves in coming up with the policy? What happens after that? The outcome can be affected by all sorts of different extraneous factors. Uh, and therefore, we zero in on the process, not the outcome of uh, strategic decision making. I might add to that, Claire, that uh, if you look at the literature, which argues that states act irrationally or in a non-rational fashion, what you see is that there's a powerful tendency to focus on foreign policy disasters, uh, cases where policies led to uh, bad outcomes. And people, and this includes scholars as well as policymakers and pundits, they conclude that because you had a disastrous outcome, the decision to pursue that particular policy that led to that outcome had to be irrational. And our argument is you cannot do that. Our argument is that you can make a rational decision that leads to a disastrous outcome. And what you have to do is look at the decision-making process. That was the word Sebastian used. You look at the process to see whether that's rational, and you don't pay attention to the outcome for the reasons that he elaborated on. And I think once you move away from outcomes and you focus on the decision-making process itself, and again, here we're focusing on the individual as well as the collectivity, you see that in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, individuals and states act rationally, contrary to what a lot of people seem to think these days. Your mention of foreign policy disasters is really a great segue into my next question. Uh, and many scholars associate rationality with interstate peace. And yet, as we've talked about, you disagree in this book. And could you expand more on this idea and perhaps unpack the entanglement between rationality and morality? Sure. Let me talk a little bit about um, process and outcomes to get at this whole issue of um, foreign policy disasters despite rational processes. Um, again, our argument is that you can be rational. You can have a credible theory. You can deliberate among yourselves. 
and yet you can fail to achieve your objectives and you can fail to achieve them catastrophically. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. The first reason is that there are real limits to theory. Uh, we've talked about how uh, the, the key to rational thought is credible theories, but even the best theories have their limits. Theories simplify the way the world works and therefore they leave out certain factors and include others. Um, if you had a credible theory uh, in the July crisis uh, before World War I, and you believed Norman Angel's theory, um, which was a credible theory, his economic interdependence theory, you would have thought that the July crisis would end peacefully. But of course, you got World War I. So there are serious limits to theory. The second issue is that there are serious, uh, there's a serious lack of information when making decisions. You could have a credible theory, and that theory tells you that the outcome is going to depend on the balance of power. But you just have poor information about what the balance of power is. It's not that easy to measure. Uh, your adversary might be hiding their capabilities and so on. So again, you can have a credible theory, poor information, disastrous outcome. And then finally, um, circumstances can change in unexpected ways. Uh, you can have regime changes. You can have technological breakthroughs. Um, and these things will impact the outcome in ways that you couldn't possibly have anticipated when you went in, even if you had a good theory and you had um, good information. So uh, this, this, this distinction between process and outcomes uh, cannot be uh, emphasized enough. You can get disasters and be rational. I think there's a powerful tendency uh, among uh, lots of students of international politics to argue that if uh, a particular policy is immoral from their point of view, then it is irrational. And you cannot do this in our opinion because morality and rationality are two different subjects. This is not to say that morality is uh, a subject not worth talking about. It certainly is. And one can judge foreign policies as to whether they're moral or immoral or amoral. That's fine. But it is important to understand that morality and rationality are two different things. And the fact is, you can pursue a deeply immoral foreign policy that involves large-scale murder, for example, and do it in a rational fashion or do it in an irrational fashion. So we are not focusing on questions about whether policies are moral or immoral or amoral. We are simply saying, given a particular goal that a state has, is it strategically rational, not is it moral or immoral or amoral? Uh, a number of people believe that uh, Vladimir Putin's decision to invade Ukraine in February of 2022 was an immoral decision. And because it was an immoral decision in their mind, it was an irrational decision. And you cannot make that linkage. 
even if it was an immoral decision, and I'm not arguing it was, but if it was an immoral decision, that does not mean it was irrational. Because again, morality and rationality are two separate issues. The, the case studies to bring it to those in, in this book are, are quite strong. Um, you look at leaders such as George W. Bush and Vladimir Putin, and you do conclude that states are rational most of the time, even if U.S. adversaries are deemed irrational. Can you talk more about um, the relationship or instances where voters or the public may personally disagree with state expansion or state leader, yet in this theory of rationality, we can still conclude that collective actions are rational? So when we started looking at these cases, our prior belief was that the public opinion, uh, the views of Congress, the views of interest groups, and so on, would have a major impact uh, on what happened inside the room as decision makers were making grand strategy um, and trying to navigate crises. Uh, but we found the opposite. We found that major decisions about grand strategy and decisions about crises are made by a handful of decision makers um, talking amongst themselves, deliberating amongst themselves, and coming up with a policy. Now, that's not to say that the public um, doesn't matter, the public opinion doesn't matter, that opposition parties don't matter. But what happened, what we found happened was that decision makers made what they thought was the best decision, the rational decision in that case. And they understood that this might require them to sell their policy to the public, but that was a separate issue. What was important was to make a rational decision, chart the best way forward, and then deal with the public. And um, most of the time, they believed that they had um, the ability to shape public opinion and to sell their policy uh, to the public um, and to ensure that they continued on their rational course. There, there may be some cases uh, in the record where domestic politics of one sort or another really mattered, but in the 14 cases that we looked at, it's quite striking uh, how absent domestic political considerations were from the process. Uh, the policymakers just formulated what they thought was the best policy. Then they got together and they sort of hashed out what would be uh, the state's ultimate policy. And in the process, they paid hardly any attention to public opinion. And at the same time, there is very little evidence that interest groups or public opinion uh, was influencing the decision-making process in some meaningful way. And in retrospect, um, again, as, as I said, when we went into it, we thought the public opinion would matter. But in retrospect, it makes perfect sense um, that uh, the public doesn't matter that much because these are decisions about the security or survival of a state. When you're formulating grand strategy, you're coming up with a plan to make your state secure. When you're navigating a crisis, uh, you're making decisions about war and peace. The idea that you would leave such decisions or that you would allow such decisions to be influenced by public opinion or by your political opponents 
uh, really doesn't make much sense. You want to come up with what you think is the best policy for navigating what is a dangerous situation. And by the way, the fact that policymakers are dealing with international politics, and that is a dangerous environment, especially when you're involved with crises and formulating grand strategies, which were the subjects that we concerned we were concerned about, you would expect those policymakers to behave in a rational manner. You would expect them to think long and hard and to deliberate with regard to what is the right strategy for their state to pursue. Uh, the political psychologists, for example, believe that policymakers use heuristics or rules of thumbs or simple-minded analogies to make their decisions about foreign policy. But this, I think, in a very important way, fails the common sense test. If you're in a serious crisis, if you're in the Cuban Missile Crisis, are you really going to rely on heuristics or rules of thumb? I don't think so. I think what you're going to do is think long and hard about how the world works, which is to say you're going to think about theory, your theory of international politics, and how it applies to the case at hand. And when we looked at these cases, all 14 cases, as I said, what you see is you see lots of evidence of people thinking long and hard about how to, uh, to proceed in a way that maximizes their state's security. In, in the book, you include a couple of cases where you have deemed that states truly acted irrationally to cases where you deemed the grand strategies were non-rational from Germany and Britain at the turn of the 20th century, and then two American case studies, America's decision to launch the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, and then the invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. Can you talk about why these cases are important to predicting how states may act in the future? I think just very quickly, the reason that we focused on those four cases and put them up in bright lights is we wanted to make it clear that there are cases of non-rationality or interaction or irrationality in the historical record. We did not want to make the case that states behave rationally all the time. Uh, because that's not the case. Our argument is that they behave rationally most of the time. One could say they routinely act rationally, but there are important cases where states act uh, in an irrational or non-rational fashion. And we wanted to actually get into those cases and show how the actors behaved so that we could show how our our basic take on rationality didn't work in those cases, whereas it worked in the other 10 cases um, where states behaved rationally. So we, again, we had these 10 cases where states behaved rationally and four cases where they didn't. And showing both cases of irrationality and rationality, I think does a lot to actually highlight the power of our argument. Uh, does a good job, in my opinion, of highlight, highlighting how theory and deliberation matter in assessing whether a state is rational or irrational. 
Just to go to your question, Claire, about um, predicting how states are going to behave. Um, what we found looking through the cases of non-rationality is, well, the first thing we found was that in, in each case, there was a non-credible theory and non-deliberation. Th those two things can be conceptually distinct, but it turns out that um, they're linked empirically. Um, so then the question is, how does a non-credible theory make it through um, the process? Well, the process is non-deliberative. So what kinds of cases are you going to get where you have a non-credible theory and a non-deliberative process? And what we decided was, or what we found, or what we concluded from the cases, was that what really matters is the nature of the ultimate decider. In, in all states, um, when I, whether you're making grand strategy or whether um, you're navigating a crisis, there has to be an ultimate decision maker. And our question was, is the ultimate decision maker a dominator? This is the kind of person who has a non-credible theory and then shuts down the deliberative process to drive their policy through. Um, that's one kind of uh, ultimate decision maker. The other kind of ultimate decision maker is a facilitator who encourages uh, deliberation. What we found in the cases of non-rationality was that the, the ultimate decision maker was a dominator. Uh, in the case of the German uh, risk strategy before World War I, it was Admiral von Tirpitz. Uh, in Britain's no liability strategy before World War II, it was Neville Chamberlain. Uh, in the Bay of Pigs case, it was uh, the CIA. And in the US uh, invasion of Iraq, it was uh, Dick Cheney, um, who was the dominator. You know, in addition to these four case studies where you examine the irrationality of state leaders, as you say, um, of these ultimate decision makers who are acting as, as dominators. You look at cases that span both world wars, the Cold War, and the post-Cold War era. So can, can you give us um, a good example of a case where a state acted rationally? Yes, I think there are... Uh... There are a number of cases I'd like to tell you about, but I'll just pick one of them, and that is NATO expansion. Uh, when uh, the Clinton administration began to think about NATO expansion in the early 1990s, uh, there were basically two perspectives. One that NATO expansion was a good idea, and the other that NATO expansion was a bad idea. And those perspectives were based on theories. Right. The policy prescriptions that the two sides put forward were based on theories. The realists argued that NATO expansion was a bad idea, that the Russians would see it as a threat and it would lead to serious trouble. The people on the other side of the debate were basically liberals who argued that NATO expansion would enhance the prospects of peace in Eastern Europe and ultimately lead to a more peaceful relationship with Russia. And that perspective was based on three liberal theories. So when you talk about NATO expansion, what you had were realists who were arguing that we should not adopt the policy of NATO expansion and liberals who were arguing based on liberal theories, 
that we should pursue NATO expansion. And let me just say a bit more about the liberal perspective. The liberal perspective was that if we moved NATO and the European Union eastward together, and we pushed the color revolutions, which were designed to promote democracy in Eastern Europe and ultimately in Russia, what we would do is create a giant zone of peace in all of Europe. Because if you have a sea of democracies, we all know democracies don't fight each other, and therefore there would be no war. Furthermore, if you spread these institutions like NATO and the EU eastward, uh, states would join these institutions. And when you join institutions, you abide by the rules, you become a responsible stakeholder, and so forth and so on. And of course, by spreading the EU eastward, you would create uh, economic interdependence all over Europe, not just in Western Europe, but in Eastern Europe, Western Europe, and with Russia. And this would lead to a peaceful world. So you had this huge battle inside the Clinton administration, basically between the realists and the liberals. And their views, as I said, were based on different theories. You also had deliberation. Bill Clinton went to great lengths to give each side plenty of opportunity to present its views on why NATO expansion was either bad or good. And in the end, Clinton made the decision because the rival groups could not reach agreement on what the best policy was. They stood at odds till the very end. Clinton stepped in, he was the ultimate decider, and Clinton decided we would do NATO expansion. Now, Sebastian and I believe that this was a wrong-headed policy, but the fact is it was done in a rational way. It was a rational policy. So I think that's a really good example of, uh, of rationality at play. There are, uh, as you mentioned, many competing theories of rationality at play in international politics, especially in deciding if, if states are acting rationally or irrationally. What about an example of a state acting irrationally and, and what competing theories might be at play in that case? Uh, let me go to the case of the U.S. Uh, invasion of Iraq um, in 2003. Um, the Bush administration decided um, soon after 9-11 that they wanted to democratize the Middle East. Um, and the reason they wanted to democratize the Middle East was that uh, they believed it would solve the uh, weapons of mass destruction proliferation problem, and it would solve the terrorism problem. Uh, that policy, that, that desire to democratize the Middle East, uh, for those reasons, was based on the famous democratic peace theory, which is a credible theory um, of the way the world works. Um, so the decision um, to democratize the Middle East uh, was uh, was was rational in that sense. Then the question was, how are you going to do it? How, how are we going to come up with a strategy? And the Bush doctrine, uh, the strategy uh, that followed, was based on three further theories. Um, the first theory was a theory of conquest. This is the famous shock and awe theory um, of how you could uh, quickly uh, conquer Iraq. The second was uh, 
forcible democracy promotion theory that you could um, you could conquer the country and you could impose democracy um, on Iraq in pretty short order. And the third argument here was, or third theory, was domino theory, that once you had installed democracy in Iraq, the dominoes would fall throughout the Middle East. Other um, non-democratic leaders would realize that the game was up um, and you'd quickly get um, a democratic greater Middle East. So those are the three theories that underpin uh, the Bush doctrine. Our argument is that the first theory, the conquest, shock and awe theory, was a credible theory. It was a credible theory of victory. Um, and as it happens, um, it, it worked as planned. But we believe that forcible democracy promotion theory and domino theory uh, were non-credible theories. And therefore, the policy uh, is irrational. And we believe they're non-credible theories for the simple reason that there was virtually no evidence um, at the time that uh, you could promote democracy at the end of a rifle barrel. And there was virtually no evidence at the time that if you knock down the first domino, other dominoes would follow. And not only was there no evidence, um, US uh, history had proved that point. The United States had tried several times uh, to democratize um, other states at the end of a rifle barrel. Um, the United States had a lot of experience uh, with the domino theory and its workings uh, during the Cold War. And they knew uh, that forcible democracy promotion and domino theory were non-credible theories. Nevertheless, they used those as the basis uh, for their strategy. Um, then the question comes up um, about deliberation. So how did they manage to force through these non-credible theories? And it turns out that it was a non-deliberative process. Uh, the people in charge here were Cheney and Rumsfeld, and they were um, what we describe as dominators. Uh, John talked about Bill Clinton earlier. Bill Clinton was a facilitator. Uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld were dominators, and they shut down the deliberative process. Let me give you a few examples. Um, they refused to discuss what Iraq would look like post-war. Um, they just um, wouldn't uh, listen uh, to uh, critics who would tell them that, that this it was going to be difficult uh, to democratize Iraq, that you'd have to leave a lot of forces there, um, and so on. Um, they ignored their critics. Uh, they suppressed doubters. Uh, they coerced uh, various agencies, um, including the CIA, into providing evidence that would support their decision uh, to go to war. Um, and they sidelined anybody um, who disagreed with them. So uh, these uh, dominators with non-credible theories about the way the world worked then shut down the deliberative process, ensured that the final strategy uh, was based on non-credible theories, and was therefore a non-rational strategy. And with the advent of nuclear warfare and the internet and now AI, how have emerging technologies affected the rationality of states? My view would be hardly at all. Mm. Uh, it just really wouldn't matter. Uh, I mean, what we're talking about here is a, uh, uh, a process where you first have to look at individuals and the theories that they have in their head and 
ask the simple question, are those theories uh, credible or not? Uh, and whether a theory is credible or not is not affected in any meaningful way by the introduction of new technologies. Uh, for example, let's talk about nuclear weapons. With the introduction of nuclear weapons after 1945, uh, there's no question that you're going to have theories that include nuclear weapons in them. For example, one of the big theories that floats around out there is nuclear coercion theory. Uh, and there's no question that that's going to come into play in particular cases. Uh, so you have theories that take account of these new technologies, but still the key question on the table is whether or not the theory is credible or not. And by the way, we conclude that nuclear coercion is not a credible theory, and anybody who employs nuclear coercion theory to come up with a policy prescription is behaving irrationally. But what I'm saying to you, Claire, is I think that the presence of nuclear weapons or uh, any other sophisticated technology like cyber uh, is still going to involve theories and whether or not individuals use credible theories or not is really the key question that you have to ask if you're trying to assess whether individuals are rational or not and then if you go to the collective level where the aggregation takes place there's no reason that the technologies be they nuclear or cyber or what have you uh, should matter there so i think this is a theory let me put it differently i think our take on rationality a take on what rationality means uh, is timeless it has little to do with changes in technology and that's why we can apply it to admiral Tirpitz. Uh, at the turn of the 19th century, uh, as well as to Vladimir Putin in 2022, when uh, he uh, sent the Russian army into Ukraine. Uh, Putin, of course, was operating in a world where nuclear weapons and cyber mattered greatly, and Tirpitz uh, was operating in a world where those were technologies that had not been invented. But we can take our template and apply it to all those cases. Another way to put it just very briefly is that all statesmen, all states at all times have had to deal with an uncertain and complex world. Uh, Tirpitz was not dealing, uh, as John said, with nuclear weapons, but he was dealing with the advent of the dreadnought, which was a major technological breakthrough. So whatever stage you're in. Again, we only looked at the last 125 years of history, but there are always technological developments. There's, there are always complexities, uh, in, improvements in communication. Yes, now we have AI, but you know, back in the day, they invented the wireless. So policymakers operate in an uncertain world, and they always operate in an uncertain world, and have done historically. And again, the, as John said, the rational way to navigate um, that kind of world is to employ credible theories. You know, thank you so much, John and Sebastian, for taking the time to join us on this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. This has been a fascinating discussion of state rationality, and I encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of How States Think for further case studies that explore how states 
Act Rationally, How States Think the Rationality of Foreign Policy by John J. Mishamer and Sebastian Rosado is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.